Hello, this is Teresa Clark with Africa.com. We are here virtually at the Africa Investors Conference. This is an investors conference that has taken place over the last decade, and it brings together institutional investors from around the world who are looking for a deep dive into investment opportunities on the African continent. The conference is sponsored by Standard Bank and ICBC. Today, Gulen Balim, the chief economist of Standard Bank, gave a presentation looking at the African, sub-Saharan African economies in the face of COVID-19. And we are here now to bring exclusive coverage of an interview with Gulen Balim and to go a little bit deeper behind his presentation. So with that, Gulam, thank you very much for taking time from your busy schedule to be with us and, and to go into some of these themes on a, on a deeper level with us. We really appreciate your, your time in doing so. Lovely to be here, Theresa. Thank you for having me. Very good. So Gulam, um, one of the first questions that I know global investors have for you is how long will it be before Sub-Saharan Africa gets back to its pre-COVID-19 growth rates? Teresa, similar to many other parts of the world, it is likely the case that GDP will revert to 2019 levels in the latter half of next year, in the latter half of 2021. And like many other markets, we think the epicenter of economic damage will be in the second and third quarters of this year. And even though I may therefore suggest that the recovery may assume that V-shaped profile, what we have to acknowledge is that 2021 will still be a year of output that is below that of 2019. And given that Africa has had fewer resources, for example, a lesser, uh, lesser amount of stimulus from government than the United States, for example, um, do you see that having an impact on Africa's ability to achieve that V-shaped recovery? So it is true that the fiscal and monetary resources don't quite have the thrust of that that we've seen in Northern Hemisphere countries. But that said, for a length of time now, the drivers of African growth have been increasingly private sector capital, as well as quite simply the increase in domestic resources, particularly labor. As economists would recognize, the labor component is also an ingredient to growth alongside innovation. So quite simply, we think that the private sector balance sheet, which admittedly has been withdrawn in recent weeks, um, and months, particularly because of COVID-19. And just to mark um, that point where, with an anecdote, we've seen uh, investors' holdings of Nigerian financial assets decline by more than 40% year to date. But having said that, we think with higher yields and as the economies begin to exit their lockdowns, you will therefore then find capital begins to likely be attracted to the African assets again. Very good. Now you've identified a couple of sectors that have been particularly hit particularly hard in Africa, tourism being one of those sectors. Which sectors do you think are most resilient in Sub-Saharan Africa? The consumer staples, and for very obvious reasons, is likely to prove fairly resilient. And of course, that remains a very significant feature of the African opportunity given the mass of population.
population and a fairly youthful mass of population. We also think elements of consumer discretionary will remain at the forefront of investors' minds. Um, and that quite clearly with GDP growth rates in many zones being ahead of per capita, being ahead of population growth, therefore alludes to increasing per capita income. And that will remain a staple over the near to medium term. Slightly more specifically, we think that beyond 2021, African growth and especially sub-Saharan African growth between three and a half and four and a half percent will be the steady state level of performance, which as I suggested a moment ago, will be ahead of population growth and therefore speaking to the increasing acquisition of durable goods items. Teresa, you did speak to tourism and quite simply with the lockdown and international travel remaining very stuttered and for some time still, areas such as those will be for a while trampled upon. However, having said that, I think the tourism opportunity on the continent will also involve to become even, for example, more emphasis on luxury tourism as opposed to more the middle priced or lower end tourism markets. So more luxury tourism and, and, and pro profiling uh, investors, particularly in the high income markets such as Western Europe, as well as the United States. Well, let's talk about digital. Um, in your remarks in front of this conference, you spoke about how Africa has had the acceleration of adoption of digital technology during this time. And we've seen how in other parts of the world, there has been a huge leapfrog in terms of adoption of technology by various sectors, such as the retail industry, such as banking, um, some institutions which were not cutting edge in digital in terms of their delivery of their service and products have had no choice but to move forward in order to keep afloat and competitive during this time. Um, with Africa having so much to gain in the digital space, um, given that it has lagged the rest of the world, are we seeing the same type of leapfrogging in Sub-Saharan Africa as has taken place in Europe and, um, and North America? or is it, has it been more, has it been less, has it been the same? Teresa, Africa, and especially Sub-Saharan Africa, is a natural market for, as you suggest, leapfrogging through technology. In fact, I would argue it is a hotbed for this thesis, superior even to Western markets. And perhaps poster child for this illustration is the manner in which Sub-Saharan Africa has leapt fixed line telephony so much so today there are more than 800 million mobile telephone connections across the continent and even why for example africa is the world leader in terms of mobile money transfer and i should say southeastern africa and kenya in particular in that respect and so the fact that digital has become even more pronounced in the dna of the Western economies as a function of COVID-19 lockdown. We think similarly to digital in its share of GDP, services in its share of GDP will be amplified um, in 2020, only continuing the acceleration in digitization, digital adoption, 
that we've seen over, especially the last 15 years. And just to round off that comment, I think the financial services industry will probably be a significant beneficiary of this continued digitization. So the capacity, for example, to create low cost money transfers from the urban centers to rural areas will only increase. And Ampesa, by way of example, has allowed rural incomes to rise by up to 30% simply because of the ease of digital money transfers. We at Standard Bank are now also, for instance, working on increasingly digitizing cross-border trade paperwork behind that endeavor. And we think that will also both lower costs, create greater efficiencies and accelerate intra-Africa trade especially. Let's talk about Africa's external debt and the fact that there is a tremendous burden on African sovereigns at this time to service their external debt. Um, do you think that that external debt should be renegotiated in order to fund the much needed internal social programs to support African countries in the wake of the economic disaster that COVID-19 has brought? African debt is a weighty matter, Teresa. These nations debt servicing as a ratio of revenues has left fivefold over the last decade. For Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, that same ratio, again, debt servicing as a proportion of state revenues has doubled um, over the last decade. So debt servicing has been a concern for a length of time and certainly prior to the onset of COVID-19 and will be a concern for the foreseeable future. Debt relief, either through the Paris Club and also increasingly private sector, non-concessional debt, will have to be part of Africa's stabilization process. And already what we've seen is the Paris Club, the nations associated um, to that idea such as China, as well as multilateral nations, multilateral entities have begun to engage African markets with the idea of debt payment holidays, debt relief, and this debt restructuring quite simply in the same way in which households and small businesses have relied on this as a mechanism to see them through this portion of the cycle will be a feature going forward. It's encouraging to see that, um, in fact, these negotiations have already begun in various places with various actors, and we think it will accelerate. But it's an essential part of the stabilization process. And again, just by way of anecdote, some of Angola's restructuring may actually see it save approximately three and a half billion dollars in terms of financing costs over the near to medium term. So do you think that the, that restructuring is enough to, to save these economies? Do you think it will put them in a position um, better than where they were before, the same as they were before, worse? Where do you think they'll net out? I think it's reasonable to argue that there was some element of overextension in terms of debt profiles prior to the onset of COVID-19. Um, and quite clearly, the appetite for euro bonds from European investors at these very attractive yields added to the allure of African sovereigns issuing this debt. I think henceforth, there's likely to be far more circumspect, far more judicious appetite 
from international investors and also African governments will probably have to practice more through the cycle responsible fiscal debt management relative to the uptake. But having said that, over the next few years, um, there is an enormous amount of redemptions that are due until the middle of this decade, and that gives African sovereigns some element of breathing space. But from here on out, I suspect that Eurobond issues may not be as lively as it was, say, in the last decade. Um, but that aside, uh, more responsible uh, fiscal, ma fiscal management will also be part of uh, the overarching debt sustainability thesis. Well, let's just um, close by looking at some specific countries or regions. And so um, we know that most people are always interested in what the top three countries are doing. So when you think about recovery for Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, uh, let us know how you see those moving as well as any other bright spots. So in terms of preferences across the region, I suspect that East Africa will likely continue to be most charming. And by that I mean it has been for a length of time relatively resilient, fairly lofty in its growth rate. And as early evidence from COVID-19 reveals, um, it is likely to be the least worse impacted relative to other zones in the continent, and especially, for instance, compared to the West African oil economies. So we think East Africa will probably be the most glistening medium-term opportunity and again, specifically with respect to Kenya, which is both a very sizable economy. We're also very excited about Ethiopia. Ethiopia continues on a fairly meaningful reform path. Admittedly, some investors has considered the Ethiopian reform journey to be perhaps um, too slow, uh, not sufficiently hurried, but undeniably um, within the reform agenda will continue over the next two years. And we think financial services for that matter within the two-year horizon will also become more lively with private sector actors. Mozambique is interesting for the gas um, and you know, the investment going into the Mozambican economy even surpasses its, uh, its GDP. So over the near to medium term, the yield the rewards from the actual investment as the first wave of, of potential economic activity, which in fact continues apace, as well as the more medium term extraction of gas and the revenue, the foreign exchange revenues that it elicits will be very substantial in, in providing a halo around the Mozambican economy, which spill over to South Africa as well, given the close geographic proximity. We're excited also for South Africa in the sense that with respect to the political dynamic in this market, we've seen the aura around President Ramaphosa increase, uh, his popularity, confidence in his leadership has increased, and also some would argue his authority within the broader political framework. And by political framework, I mean the President's authority within what we call in South Africa the tripartite alliance. There is alliance of African National Congress, the Communist Party, and Labour. The president has in fact mushroomed in um, his command of the economy, the authority seated in his office surrounding COVID-19. And we think he could use that, utilize that to assert uh, an additional reform agenda 
which we think will also be forthcoming in, in the ensuing months. We are a little cautious then on West African nations, particularly the oil economies, given the volatility and the relatively low oil price uh, compared to say a few years ago. And we think the shock to revenues, the shock to foreign exchange, the constrained liquidity may mean that the oil economies emerge somewhat slower than say the East African economies um, from uh, the COVID-19 shock. And so that perhaps gives you some sense of the distribution of the impact of COVID-19 by region and some economies. Well, Gulam, thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise. We really appreciate you stepping away from the conference to join us today. Um, this is Teresa Clark of Africa.com. We're concluding our interview here live as part of the Africa Investors Conference, the 10th anniversary of this exclusive London event sponsored by Standard Bank and ICBC for global institutional investors looking for a deep dive into investment opportunities in Africa. This is a meeting among those investors and policymakers and thought leaders on investment opportunities like the chief economist of Standard Bank, Gulam Balim, who's just been very generous with his time in sharing his knowledge on Sub-Saharan Africa's future economic prospects with us. Thank you again, Gulam, and thank you very much, Standard Bank.